At work, I took hour-long naps in the supply closet under the stairs during my lunch breaks. Napping is such a childish word, but that was what I was doing. This intriguing phrase is taken from Otessa Moschfeck's 2018 novel, My Year of Rest and Relaxation, our novel of choice for debating the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks on New York City and the Pentagon in Washington, which have come to be known as 9-11. To me, it's unbelievable that this should be 20 years ago. In the same time, I feel that 9-11 marks a threshold in politics and in artistic production and aesthetic responses to the present moment. So I have many questions about this, and I'm super excited to explore a piece of lady fiction that revisits the period just before September 11. And I'm grateful to my colleague, Dr. Marius Henderson, for suggesting the novel to me and for agreeing to be my guest today. Hi, Marius. Hi, thank you so much for, for having me. It's a huge honor and, and, and pleasure to be here. Thank you for coming. So before uh, we uh, dive into the novel right away, I'd like to have a, have a few words of introduction so our listeners will know a little bit more about Marius. Uh, Marius is an Americanist and researcher from the University of Erlangen-Nürnberg in Germany. He studied English and American studies and gender studies at Hamburg and at John Hopkins University. And in his 2019 dissertation deals with modes of rendering suffering in contemporary experimental North American poetry. He's a member of Erlangen's Global Sentimentality Project and his research interests include affect theory, abstraction and objection, and this is also uh, the focus of his current research project, African-American studies, gender and queer studies, modernist and avant-garde studies, and artistic research. Marius regularly cooperates with other scholars, writers, and artists, and is interested in collaboratively exploring and bridging gaps between scholarly and artistic practices. And that, I think, is a great starting point for latching onto the representation of the New York City art industry, which we have in Moschfeck's year of rest and relaxation. But I would like to postpone that a little bit and uh, like to start by opening and looking at the novel a bit more generally through the lens of 9-11 literature. So let's maybe introduce our readers to the novel. What is, what's it all about? The novel is narrated by an um, unnamed narrator who's well, also the, the protagonist of the, of the novel. However, she uh, is quite open also about certain markers of identity. Uh, so um, she's a um, cis, cis female character who also identifies as a wasp, a white Anglo-Saxon um, Protestant with um, blonde hair who matches contemporary uh, normative beauty standards. She's just fresh out of college, um, a uh, Columbia University graduate uh, majoring in art history. And um, as the novel sets in, she works for a um, gallery in, in Chelsea. Which all sounds like it's the perfect life you want to live, right? <laughs> It it, def it definitely does, and um, I guess we'll come back to that, to different forms of life and um, possibilities and, and impossibilities of maybe breaking out of certain yeah, subject mm -hmm. positions. But as the title already says, My Year of Rest and Relaxation, the novel mainly follows the experiment of the, um, the narrator um, slash uh, protagonist who tries to sleep as much as possible for an entire year, which is the year ranging from 2000 until 2001. So um, yeah, we can already bear that in mind. It ends in, in 2001, thinking of 9-11 attacks. So she basically tries to cop out from a state of, of being awake and tries to sleep as much as she can. And in doing so, she she does, or she does so by taking all kinds of uh, medication, prescription pills of various sorts, 
and um, she also has a well resourceful resourceful companion <laughs> in that um, a, a a psychotherapist or psychiatrist psychiatrist called Dr. Tuttle, mm. uh, with whom she is in, in therapy and who um, um, makes sure that she's never lacking new supplies of of sleep inducing medication. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 an, a body experiment that she goes through. And when I started reading, I was like. Okay, that's interesting. And then halfway through the novel, I thought, okay, it's really weird. <laughs> so I became increasingly estranged with her uh, determination to do, to put this through uh, this experiment, sleep as much as you can and do as little as you possibly can. So she really has also has a regime when she works up. Uh, when she wakes up, she uh, has a piece of pizza. Um, she does some crunches uh, to keep her muscles from totally going away. And then she takes the next medication and she goes to sleep again. And um, the novel is also a record of medical experimentation because we have different medications and different outcomes of those medications uh, that we have to discuss in between. If it wasn't for the experiment only and the end point, this could be something I think that could be said at any time. But when she decides that the experiment is over, that's the day of September 11th. Uh, so that's her first day when she says, okay, the experiment is done. I did my sleep. And that's the end point of this, which makes this novel published in 2018, a novel about the time leading up to the 9-11 attacks, of course, in retrospect. So I don't think you can read the novel without thinking about the threshold or uh, the game changer or uh, the epoch marking events that seem to be 9-11 to us today. So first of all, I think we have to discuss how much is this of a 9-11 novel and, and how does it, does it deal with it? When I looked back from a contemporary standpoint, I was struck by all the, the end formulations. Uh, so we have the, the end of history, uh, the quote by Francis Fukuyama, which has been, uh, which he himself has been revoked in the meantime. So, but this is supposedly, this was supposedly the end of history. In from an artistic or aesthetic standpoint, it's been called the end of irony. Uh, and of postmodernist language play. So the end of the linguistic turn, so to speak, and a crisis of signification that led to uh, endless language games and a reduction or a turn to language only because representation as such had become impossible. And uh, then the, the big question is, what comes after that? When I was writing my dissertation in the early 2000s, I was also looking at contemporary literature. And I remember turning away from 9-11 uh, literature and from the terminology involved in this because I thought it was too early. And I thought I was so I was too insecure about calling the text that I was reading 9-11 literature or post 9-11 literature. But in the meantime, of course, there were Lots of literary scholars who have commented on this. And uh, when I looked back, I found that 10 years after, in 2011, there's a conference at the University of Bonn that has been published in an essay collection uh, beyond 9-11, where uh, Simone Knewitz, Christian Klöckner and Sabine Sielke uh, reflect on how 9-11 not so much was a marker, but the how it has shifted our focus and, quote, made us think differently about historical, political, social and cultural processes. So while 10 years after, it was still critical to say, was this the very moment or was there more a period maybe of rest and relaxation or something that led up to this moment that made this shift of focus happen to us? 10 years after, they felt compelled to say, it made us think differently and we want to reflect on this. And in the present moment, it's more like a reflection of, of the lack of terminology. And so this month and this time of year, of course, in 2021, we will see lots of commentaries, people coming out saying it was this, it was that. We marked 20 years. So much has changed ever since. What would be your take on reading this as a 9-11 novel? Yeah, that's a, that's a, um, a great uh, question. And I'm 
I'm familiar with some of those discourses, of course, I mean, meaning so-called quote-unquote 9-11 literature, as well as with critical and theoretical discourses. Having been in high school during the 9-11 attacks, this is part of kind of also kind of active uh, remembrance on, on my yeah. part of, of having having lived through through that um, period of time as well. And um, what I found um, quite convincing also that, that when, when a review or that this discussion opinion piece on Moshfake's novel by Ariel Saramandi um, that was published in, on electric um, literature was that um, he in a way makes the argument that Moshfake's novel also really, at least throughout um, most, most of its passages um, in this phase leading up to, to, to the 9-11 attacks in a way is also a, a revisiting in a way of the quote-unquote long 1990s as a kind of intermediate phase between the Cold War mm -hmm. and then the 9-11 attacks and the so-called quote-unquote war on terror to a certain degree maybe raising the question and how far this supposed intermediate phase uh, which uh, was or at least as it is to a certain degree depicted in, in, in the novel as a phase of, of certain level of carelessness and um, optimism, maybe even not necessarily by the protagonist, but by yeah. the, uh, the social circles and the milieu uh, that she's a part of, meaning educated, um, mainly pre or predominantly white cultural elites, so to speak, or supposed self-proclaimed elites, artistic elites, and so on and so forth in, in New York, and how this latent optimism, in a way, resonates with the phase um, following after the Bush years, the Bush junior years, meaning the, during the Obama presidency, if one wants to um, mm. kind of use these pre presidencies as, as possible markers, and then leading up to, to the, the Trump presidency as a renewed moment of crisis. But um, at least that, that as, a, as a certain form of structure of feeling which the text maybe um, conveys. However, it's important that this notion of, of, of carelessness and, and optimism once more is very much seems to be tied in with the situatedness of uh, certain subjectivities. Um, but coming back to the question of 9-11 of literature, I would definitely say that you that you know this, that this novel came out 10 years after or yeah, a decade after um, these somewhat by now, maybe even canonized, uh, nine nine eleven ca uh, novels came out, and to a certain degree, also presents new takes on the issue. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of, of novels such as Don DeLillo's Falling Man or Jonathan Safran Foer's Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. On the one hand, I mean, we I guess we can speak about new sincerity as 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 yeah, well, but um, that was um, one of the yeah yeah. I mean, in, in the novels that I just mentioned, they've been very much also discussed along the lines of trauma theory and discussed mm. kind of 9-11 uh, as, a, as a traumatic event for individuals um, or and as reflected individual characters, but also as a kind of collective trauma. And um, I would say that that Moshfeg's novel moves, moves away from the trauma narrative to a certain degree, even though issues of mental health, mental distress, and, and trauma also um, play play a huge part. But given, I mean, the, the basic setting and this experiment of trying to numb oneself to, to recede from the waking life as much as possible, kind of presents a more detached position, maybe in relation to also issues of, of, of traumatization. Yeah. Mm. We have to we have to talk trauma a little bit and its meanings in in the novel. So it's called my year of rest and relaxation, but of course we never find out why she takes this decision to sleep as much as she can. It's only in between the lines. So the, the reading experience is one that, you know, me I, as a reader, I was constantly questioning what what happened before and then who is she? So it's a very, it's a, it's a little bit of a, a medias res uh, jumping in situation. Uh, where we start with the experiment right away. We learn in between that she lost both of her parents at a very short uh, interim. 
There's also talk about how they passed. So her father was a was a professor who um, was sick, and her mom basically uh, killed herself. So she there is a, a trauma perspective there in which she cannot deal with that loss. She's overwhelmed with it, but at the same time, she she continues her life. She has an inheritance. She's very comfortable because of her parents' death. She she can do this experiment in New York City in her apartment. So I'm going to take the book here and uh, go to the the pages that I marked. So we are constantly looking for. So I I we can speak for myself only. I was constantly looking for reasons why she was doing this, and she basically says. I, I felt nothing. I could think of feelings, emotions, but I couldn't bring them up in me. I couldn't even locate where my emotions came from. So she she's always wondering what's going on. Where why doesn't she feel anything? Was sadness the came the same kind of thing? Was joy? Was longing? Was love a physiological response? And in between, there's another quote that I'm gonna uh, talk about. She imagines becoming an ice queen. We have to talk about the ice references here. Uh, let me be a cold bitch. Let me be the ice queen. You don't feel a thing. And then towards the end, and that's the question, you know, this is not a spoiler per se, but after the sleep, the outcome of the experiment, uh, one of the outcomes is, uh, and this is a quote again, I was soft and calm and felt things. This was good. So, she has lost a sense of feeling. She, do, she doesn't know how to feel. And then in the end, after sleeping so much, she diagnoses herself with feeling something again. So the loss of emotion and of authenticity of feeling is what triggers this. But there's also a lack of words that reminded me very much of trauma theory, you know, that which you can't speak about, which you can't put into words so the trauma does work as a, as a frame of reference uh, for the novel i would definitely agree and i mean uh, that's one of that that's one of the uh, possible interpretations that the novel also offers um also well her biographical um experiences and the the death of course frankly quite traumatizing death of her parents uh, for instance but i feel <laughs> i feel that um at the same time, this is only one possible interpretation that it, that is being offered, and due to the the narrator's uh, very often ironic or mm -hmm. sarcastic mm -hmm. uh, tone, that uh, made it um, a bit more questionable for me, at least, to read it solely through this one lens or to um, kind of, in a way, individualize and and primarily psychologize this this decision to um, sleep as much as possible. I mean, it's definitely, I would say, one of the frameworks that the text offers, but it's... It but what, what, what other reason does anyone have to decide to sleep for a year when you're like in your 20s and you live in New York City and you work in an art gallery? I mean, it's like, it looks like a very normative, desirable identity um uh, uh, or, or this, you know, story of life, and then she decides to just go away. So, so trauma is one frame. But what, what did you think? What's mm -hmm. going on? Yeah, I guess this is also an intermingling of of form and and content. Um, in that respect, I would say that this this experiment very much, of course, verges on on the surreal to a certain degree, or maybe even the fantastic, and and, and some of the, I mean. The novel also can, contains long passages where, where the narrator lists all of the medication that, that she's taking, uh, yeah. which is also reminiscent of, of certain um, well, no, novelistic traditions, also adds a certain degree of, of verisimilitude maybe to the, to the text. At the same time, some of those medications are also invented, also this, this one uh, medication that she takes. Yeah, that, a, a, um, German, a German, uh, a German invention. I remember that, 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 yes, in, infinite, no, we have to check. What's it called? In, that medication gives her the greatest trips ever, right? That's, that's the medication that dissolves the boundaries between sleep and waking, where she wakes up and she doesn't know. She collects her her Polaroids from the things that she went on sleepwalking. Inframitoral, if one pronounced it or would pronounce it like that. Yes, and I 
feel that it's in addition to to those formal and and maybe also um, yeah um, uh, thematic or, or conceptual uh, investments in realism or, or, or neo neo realism. Um, there's this bridging on on the surreal sometimes and. and maybe also tinges of romanticism and also a certain romanticist desire perhaps to evade and escape from the dynamics of what put it plainly a late late capitalism or or or, or neo neoliberalism by um yeah op opting out by being as seemingly unproductive as possible and without necessarily as you as you already mentioned, I mean, giving giving her privileged position, without necessarily um, having a um, relatable reason, at, at least at at a, at a first sight. So um, maybe one could argue that this is a possible critique or or, or critical reflection on reflecting on possibilities of of refusal within a certain um, totalizing structural dynamics that the novel puts forth or also mm. experiments with. So let's let's take a moment with this with this refusal moment. So um, you also suggested that one of the possible you could, it's a 9/11 novel but it's also a 2008 post um, economic crisis novel uh, in that she really opts out. She has the luxury, she can do this. She arranges for it. Uh, she doesn't have to work for a living. That's the starting point. Um, but she does opt out of any role expectations, any norms that her personality at this age might be faced with. And there's an economic perspective, a refusal, refusal perspective in that, and that I find very appealing in your argument. So so how do you how do you read this as a 2008 novel? Well, I saw certain resonances between her decision to yeah opt out to refuse refusing to be um quote-unquote productive um however one one wants to define that to um invest in in um, self-optimization all those um, imperatives which circulate and so i also saw certain resonances with some of the um social movements um socio-political movements that that emerged in response to the 2008 crisis such as the occupy movement or which well began also in I believe in in New York and in, in, in Zuccotti Park as Occupy by um, Wall Street yeah I was thinking of him he he is the impersonation of that evil evil uh, class of people yeah so he comes Trevor is his name he's older and he uh, well, he's on and off boyfriend, but it's a very, uh, the relationship is based on sex. The kind of gratification she gets uh, is rests on the fact that she has to comply to whatever he wants most of the time. Uh, so it's not as if it's super fulfilling uh, or he's also not the love of her life in any way. Uh, he really much is not invested in her in, in the sense of the word. So whenever... Uh, she she's only a, a rebounds for him whenever he feels bad he will come around there's it's also funny they're funny sex scenes explicit funny sex scenes in the novel that we can't spoil here uh, but I would I laughed out loud in some situations because they're so grotesque and this guy is really really a caricature but it's also very sad that he's <laughs> he seems very realistic at the same time. So um, so occupy occupy would be one approach to opting out to um, trying to expose the workings of a neoliberal order that that pervades every sense of being um, and that dictates how 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 persons can be in this in this book. So she. She also does a lot of napping. Maybe that's a, a, a nice cue. She has a job at the beginning of the novel, um, but she she naps so much on the job and she gets so many things wrong that she's ultimately fired, which she was, uh, which is what she was hoping for. So, at the opening of this podcast, you quoted a a phrase from the workplace. Maybe we can go to this section and, and read it so the listeners also get a, a sense of this style of narration which is monological and retrospective 
but at the same time also leave so many questions open to the reader. So this is where she's still at work and she naps in the supply closet, which is very funny. And she works at the art gallery. At work, I took hour-long naps in the supply closet under, under the stairs during my lunch breaks. Napping is such a childish word, but that was what I was doing. The tonality of my night sleep was more variable, generally unpredictable, but every time I lay down in that supply closet, I went straight into black emptiness, an infinite space of nothingness. I was neither scared nor elated in that space. I had no visions. I had no ideas. If I had a distinct thought, I would hear it, and the sound of it would echo and echo until it got absorbed by the darkness and disappeared. There was no response necessary, no inane conversation with myself. It was peaceful. A vent in the closet released a steady flow of fresh air that picked up the scent of laundry from the hotel next door. There was no work to do, nothing I had to counteract or compensate for because there was nothing at all, period. And yet I was aware of the nothingness. I was awake in the sleep somehow. I felt good, almost happy. But coming out of that sleep was excruciating. My entire life flashed before my eyes in the worst way possible, my mind refilling itself with all my lame memories, every little thing that had brought me to where I was. I tried to remember something else, a better version, a happy story maybe, or just an equally lame but different life that would at least be refreshing in its digressions. But it never worked. I was always still me. Sometimes I woke up with my face wet with tears. The only times I cried, in fact, were when I was pulled out of that nothingness, when the alarm on my cell phone went off. Then I had to trudge up the stairs, get coffee from the little kitchen, and rub the boogers out of my eyes. It always took me a while to, re to readjust to the harsh fluorescent lighting. For a year or so, everything seemed fine with Natasha, that's her, her boss at the, at the gallery. The most grief she gave me was about ordering the wrong pens. Why do we ha have all these cheap clickety pens? They're so loud when you click them. You can't hear this? She stood there, clicking at me. Sorry, Natasha, I said. I'll order quieter pens. Has FedEx come yet? I would rarely know how to answer that. Once I'd started seeing Dr. Tuttle, I was getting in 14, 15 hours of sleep a night during the work week, plus that extra hour at lunchtime. Weekends, I was only awake for a few hours a day. And when I was awake, I wasn't fully so, but in a kind of a murk, a dim state between the real and the dream. I got sloppy and lazy at work, grayer, emptier, less there. This pleased me, but having to do things became very problematic. When people spoke, I had to repeat what they'd said in my mind before understanding it. I told Dr. Tuttle I was, half tr I was having trouble concentrating. She said it was probably due to brain mist. Are you sleeping enough? Dr. Tuttle asked every week I went to see her. Just barely, I always answered. Those pills hardly put a dent in my anxiety. Eat a can of chickpeas, she said, otherwise known as garbanzos, and try these. She scribbled on her prescription pad the array of medicines I was accumulating was awe-inspiring. Dr. Tuttle explained that there was a way to maximize insurance coverage by prescribing drugs for their side effects, rather than going directly to, to those whose main purposes were to relieve my symptoms, which were in my case debilitating fatigue due to emotional weakness, plus insomnia resulting in soft psychosis and belligerence. That's what she told me she, she was going to write in her notes. She turned her prescribing method eco-scripting and said she was writing a paper on it that would be published soon in a journal in Hamburg. So she gave me pills that targeted migraine headaches, prevented seizures, cured restless leg syndrome, prevented hearing loss. These medicines were supposed to relax me so that I could get some much needed rest. And the irony of this passage is, of course, that, that she tricks her, her doctor into giving her uh, sleep pills when she only wants to sleep as much as she can. So she says that she has insomnia, but at the end of the day, she uh, uh, she gets a prescription for more sleep so she can go on her experiment. Okay, so this passage is intriguing because, okay, we start out with the napping in the supply closet and the description of this kind of sleep, which I find intriguing, a nothingness that is a key motif 
And opposite this is the ex excruciating experience of waking up again and being only me and having this boring life that she dreams about having something else. So what's the the sleep description? It's actually a, a description of a different state of being that is beyond the here now. Yeah. There's maybe two more things that I might add also to what I said um, previously or to, to connect um, this passage with also the context of the, uh, the post-2008 financial crisis context, the Occupy movement, and general observations with respect to the narration also, which is that during the uh, initial Occupy Wall Street uh, protests, there were marathon readings of uh, Herman Melville's um, Bartleby the Scrivener, a story of Wall Street, this short story um, being, yeah, being held at the protest site. And um, Bartleby, who's a scrivener, in, as the, the title announces, in a, in a lawyer's office at, at Wall Street, um, at some point this character Bartleby, the, the story is narrated by, by the lawyer. At some point, um, Bartleby, who's initially a very reliable um, employee, however, he hasn't been employed for that long yet, at some point he refuses to, to re respond to any of the tasks and the requests by his employer and simply uh, or answers with the famous phrase, I would prefer not to, um, when he's asked to fulfill certain, certain tasks and um, in the end ends up uh, being... Um, institutionalized um, or uh, in, in, imprisoned um, due to this um, due to the refusal right due to him saying no most of the time yeah this act of refusal and just this phrase I would prefer not to which seemingly comes out of nowhere without a particular reason in that case for instance a biographical psychological reason or so therefore became a kind of catchphrase or Bartleby became a kind of poster child of, of Occupy which also started as a broad movement which didn't necessarily um, emerge out of a more classical um, political context or institutions such as parties or, or labor unions and, and so on and so forth, but it co combined a multiplicity of activists which responded to this financial crisis without formulating clear demands, but simply in a way refused the status quo, mm -hmm. so to speak, in the system which had led to um, massive unemployment and um, precarious um, station of multiple uh, persons. And this kind of act of refusal that the protagonist in Moshfeg's novel enacts to a certain degree seems to seem to resonate with me with this Bartlebyan uh, refusal due to the fact that it doesn't seem to have a clear reason and, and also not a, a clear goal, so to speak. At the same time, there's a marked difference due to the positionality of the narrator well, who identifies as, as female and who is more more open about her her positionality and and at the same time in the novel um and maybe we'll get to that later i mean even this act of refusal is turned into market value or into artistic market value um when when this yes. sleeping of hers yeah. becomes part of an, an art project but yeah so there's a, there's a close linkage between work and refusal of the status quo for no other reason than we can maybe imagine and that goes back to my my reading response that i talked about in the opening i was always wondering what is her problem so is it okay so trauma is one response and you said it's a it's a legitimate you know explanation but it's not enough we're left with this lack of knowledge about her true motivations but we keep wanting to construct a psychological reason why she's traumatized okay obviously but no that's not all of it uh she's also she she doesn't give us the answer she just does what she does like Bartleby and um she can escape institutionalization <laughs> good for her but she is fired from her job after performing performing so poorly so work and opting out of work is one point of view or one one um field here and milieu the other milieu is art and you already talked about how her sleep is turned into an art project she works at the gallery we need to talk about the art industry in new york city and the the monetization of art so how does sleep become the art project mm -hmm. well i mean there there are so many um explicit and implicit and very often also um yeah 
ironic um, uh, references to um, um, the contemporary art scene um, in uh, Western context or in, in New York um, specifically, I, I suppose. I mean, the, uh, the the gallery's name, I don't know if it was mentioned in the passage that I read, or it's, it's called Do, Do Cat, so there's the, the reference to uh, the monetarization of, of, of art um, there's, there as well. So, as you said, ultimately she is fired for not performing, but um, then she um, kind of makes an arrangement or finds an agreement with one of the uh, most successful artists um, wh uh, whom her, her former boss um, and, and, their, and her gallery represent, an, an artist called um, Ping Shi in, in the, in the um, novel, a um, um, Chinese-American artist who's kind of depicted as a, as a shooting star, a transgressive, uh, cutting-edge artist, basically. She makes this arrangement with, with um, this artist, Ping Shi, that um, she will remain in her, locked up in her apartment for three months, I believe, and, um, and uh, will take this, um, this medication that we already mentioned, which um, puts her to sleep for three uh, consecutive days. And that um, during this time, that um, for the three months that she will basically try to sleep through them, except for these brief moments uh, when she um, wakes up, has to, um, uh, and that the artist Ping Shi has, has full access to, to her apartment and can undergo and, 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 and kind of create uh, an, an artwork in, in that setting or multiple artworks um, in that setting. And that th there are certain, well, issues that he's asked to take care of, that he kind of um, leaves her some, some pizza in the refrigerator and, and, and so on and so forth. But um, ultimately she um, is handing her sleeping self over to this, uh, to this art project. Yeah, and he basically, I think it consists mainly of him coming in and photographing her sleeping and then putting her body in different positions and... Uh, Things like this. So it's uh, she. She basically gives her her awareness or her her waking self, uh, and uh, shows herself in this super vulnerable state of deep sleep. And he can do whatever he wants with with this sleeping body. That's the that's the the art project. But there's another instance when she becomes involuntarily an art project uh, or a commentary on art when she comes to her um, art history class. Or feminist theories and art practices, nineteen sixties and nineteen nineties, in uh, at Columbia University, and she walked in late because her heel broke, and the professor points at her and says, "We're just discussing feminist performance art as a political deconstruction of the art world as a commercial industry." And uh, the professor asks her to stand in front of the classroom which I did, quote, let my left foot arch like a Barbie's and the class analyzed it as a performance piece. So she she leaves the class after that and takes another class because she doesn't, she feels humiliated by this experience. But the professor putting her on the spot as a, you know, takes into account her appearance, uh, her waspiness, her good looks, um, and the fact that she has uh, an artistic, intricate feminist commentary in and of herself that she is a walking feminist commentary or maybe post-feminist commentary in this context because the heels, I think, if I remember correctly, were also Manolo Blahnik heels that she broke. So so you can imagine how she appears in front of class and how, how this is humiliating for her to be, um, to be read as a feminist performance art piece because she wears expensive clothes. Um, what did you think about this scene? Well, I feel that, that, the, that the text is kind of um, oscillating there, maybe um, between various positions or, or stances um, between affirmation and critique with, with respect to um, contemporary um, artistic um, discourses and, and practices, for, for instance, also including, including commentary and, and theorizations of, of, um, of art and their um, feminist um, criticism is, is, of course, um, essential and, 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 and crucial. And, and 
I feel that the text seems to indicate that seemingly non-normative or emancipatory critiques um, are, are very often also subject to um, commodification, to uh, becoming a kind of stale or, or, or losing their, their critical and subversive um, potential, or to becoming kind of cliché due to um, kind of circulation, performative repetition, and, and so on and so forth. Um, so this would be in line with a kind of more ironic, maybe even kind of pre- or post-modern stance, maybe even to a certain degree, rather. Mm. Um, but um, mm. at the same time, as, as you mentioned, there's this affect of humiliation which is being transported. That this, um, the, the text how it resorts to, um, to, to embodiment, to, to notions of authenticity as at the same time uh, wagering and, and kind of presenting um, being embodied um, affectivity um, as as a possible um, counterpoint in in relation to this repetition of, of truly uh, some symbolic symbolic acts and, and, and discourses which are always already entwined with with processes of commodification and and the, the generation mm. of value but and there's but there's also this other this other passage uh, referring to this um, project with the artist um, Ping Shi where um, as it is still ongoing, she has this kind of um, waking sleep, and she imagines what his the the artworks that he creates um, while he um, while he enters her apartment as she's sleeping, what they might look like. And there's one yeah, dream where she imagines them to be um, mainly um, nude or semi-nude paintings of a of a sleeping. Um, female figure um, whose face, however, is not, not visible. So uh, kind of seeming to be portraits of her. And she interprets this as a kind of critical um, feminist uh, critique of the long history of the objectification of um, female uh, gendered, gendered bodies uh, throughout, throughout art, art history. Um, that that's only a, her her dream. The the artwork that that Ping Shi in the end then then creates has um, has her face kind of um, or presents her face in an ex ex exaggerated or an enlarged form. It um, consists of paintings and of videos where you also see her speaking into the camera in a kind of sleepy state, or she obviously doesn't seem to be full, fully conscious. Um, but you uh, you do not her voice, but it's um, there's a there's a voiceover by. Um, um, voicemails that um, Ping Shi's mother left him in in in, in Cantonese. So um, there are so many subtle and not so subtle comments on also the commodification, the tokenization of of difference of different um, positionalities in in the uh, art scene, which which the the the, the text um, depicts. Um, but as maybe as a as a last uh, point that I, that I could add to that is that, um, but the the oscillation re re remains and the ambiguity, um, um, because there's also another passage, even more towards the end, um, after the project has already ended, when she enters the Met Museum and she looks at um, paintings. I mean, they're they're not um, the titles aren't mentioned, but um, one can, due to their description, um, it seems to be still lifes and and more more realist possibly 19th century paintings. Um, and she um, expresses this desire to almost merge with these paintings and then it's being um, stopped by a, by a guard. And there, there seems to be a, nonetheless a certain notion of the sanctity of art. And um, that's, that's mm. and so, once more actually kind of rather archaic, maybe somewhat cliched uh, notions of art that, that, that the text also brings into um, circulation, um, yeah, which which m makes it resonant, resonate to a certain degree also with this uh, the discourse on, on meta modernism, which was circulating for some time, um, and and there yeah. um, Luke yeah. Turner, the artist who wrote the Meta Modernist Manifesto, kind of claimed that um, oscillation is kind of the key uh, ingredient of of of, of meta modernism to a certain degree, and also this. Oscillation between authenticity and ironic detachment, for instance. Um, mm, mm, mm. Yeah. 
And so this is, I think this is also a good seek to discussing uh, this a little bit in the context of post 9-11 literature or post postmodernist literature in the movement of new sincerity um, and the um, affective turn, which you already mentioned and which you're working on uh, professionally uh, as a researcher as well. So with David Foster Wallace's manifesto, which already came out in 1993, El Pluribus Unam, which proclaimed there, there needed to be an end very short synopsis here. There needed to be an end to uh, post the crisis of representation in postmodernist language play. And in the early 2000s, um, writers like Ben Lerner, Sheila Hedy, Dave Eggers published novels where that were autofiction, and this is also true for Tessa Moschweg's uh, novel, and that circulated around the question of re-engaging re with the world and with the reader in a sincere and authentic way. But at the same time, these novels uh, always oscillated. This is the key to what you talked about before. They oscillated between the attempt to do this and at the same time, the failure that was already programmed in this. And, I'm, and the, at this point, I'm going to refer to my fabulous colleague from Jena University, who just completed his dissertation on the new sincerity movement and uh, the notion of productive failure and the irony that lies in this. And he basically argues it's it's a form of romantic irony um, that they turn to, not so much the postmodernist irony. But that's maybe going too far here. But coming, coming back to the question of new sincerity, a new engagement with the world that is also building on being embodied and uh, feeling feelings, which is also the problem of our protagonist here, and the impossibility to communicate those feelings at the same time. But there's always the attempt, the oscillation, the, 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 the reaching out. And this often happens in those new sincerity novels through uh, meta-reflective commentary on the production of art. So this is where I think Moschweg's commentary on art and the art world is commodification on the one hand, but then the oscillation towards, I want to be a piece of art and my sleep experiment is an artistic practice that I can do with my body. And then I dream about what kind of art it becomes and then I see the reality of what kind of art it becomes, but I don't judge. I throw it all out there for the reader to either appreciate or respond to or be puzzled about. But it's a kind of bearing all that also involves cringy moments, uh, moments where we observe her uh, body functions that are kind of intimate and embarrassing maybe. But that's that's key because that's a central component of this new sincerity to showing it all and the fact that you're showing it all, warts and all, <laughs> is this act of reaching out and of producing art that invites the reader to be in and that invites the reader to create an authenticity effect, even though we already know it's impossible. So what did you think? New sincerity, uh, effective turns. How does this novel work in this way? Mm -hmm. I totally agree with what you or meant or think that, that, that um, as you've um, elaborated on these um, movements and turns and they they very much um, reverberate in, in Moschweg's novel as well so a new sincerity um, a um, investment in certain authenticity um, effects I mean I think it's no coincidence or there there's a um, a uh, a recording, for instance, of a, of a book release event which uh, took place at the famous Strand bookstore in, in New York of, of, of Moschweg's novel where she was in conversation with Lena Dunham, the um, also author but also um, um, a creator of, of, the, um, um, of the TV series Girls to a certain degree also. Um, uh, many of those characteristics that, that you um, refer to with respect to new sincerity and authenticity effects and also the showcasing of modes of embodiment um, and potentially em embarrassing cringeworthy moments potentially humiliating embodied experiences on um, that that you find that in in the novel as well as in, in a uh, tv series such as girls and at the same time i mean as, as you mentioned those those are effects uh, which are, are are achieved through through certain um representational um strategies and um 
it, it just raises raises new new questions and and I mean there there are really many resonances also as I mentioned between the new sincerity and and, and meta modernism um, I I just looked at the, the manifesto once more and and um, um, of the meta modernist manifesto in there uh, Luke Turner writes that we propose a pragmatic romanticism unhindered by ideological anchorage so this pragmatism not necessarily in the philosophical sense but in the everyday colloquial understanding of the term and romanticism once more this pairing of seemingly oscillating notions but then unhindered by ideological anchorage and that's something that I noted with Marshfake's novel as well is that it's doesn't or rarely references for instance in more detail um, critical theoretical discourses which also went went along or, or emerged took place circulated um, in the in the context um, in which uh, which the uh, which the novel is is set such as the um, the uh, um, um, yeah late late 1990s um, arts you know I mean in, in the passage that you quoted there's this reference to feminist criticism however in a very superficial way um, and mm -hmm. and that's um, also a a uh, one aspect which maybe distinguishes this text also from a a a, a text such as uh, Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts for instance also regarded as a kind of work of auto fiction but which um, more um, copiously and outrightly engages with uh, theoretical debates, uh, referencing, for instance, key positions in, in queer affect theory or so. And and this, in a way, can of course then then raise the question where where the, the where the no novel stands. If you want to say that, I know that it's uh, at the same time. I don't want to reduce it in in any way. But um, but this also comes back to the question of of the possible um. Bartleby resonances and 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 so on and so mm. forth is um if if the text in a way remains in in this oscillating oscillating uh, movement and 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 motion and one thing that I might might add also with respect to to uh, new new sincerity is that um I mean this this my year of rest and relaxation is also of course a very self-involved text I mean from the or as solid or I, this experiment is, is also fairly a solipsistic, uh, and and mm -hmm. um, the take on on the um, on the questions that that the new sincerity text maybe maybe raise, such as what comes after the supposed age of, of of irony, or how might there be a reinvestment in embodiedness and 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 authenticity and so on, so forth, be 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 imagined um, that. I feel that that very often. I mean, that maybe also goes hand in hand with the novelistic form, or, or that the the means of mediating those discourses is very often um, uh, the individual, um, and um, mm. in a in a very radical way in in, in Marshfake's novel. Uh, of course, even at the same time, I mean, the, this experiment is also an experiment in trying to recede from subjectivity, but. I just also when I when I yeah prepared myself uh, had to think of some some another kind of post 9/11 text that's maybe not that well known, which is a, a kind of novelistic experiment called Rena Spallings um, by the um, artistic collective Bernadette Corporation, and that's a, a collectively written uh, novel where where there's also a protagonist, a figure of Rena Spallings, but uh, it's um, at least an attempt at a at a at a um, non-individualistic take on some of these these issues yeah yeah so the individual the self the monad whatever you want to call it is is um is at the heart of this and it's super it's super intriguing that you're mentioning this other collective text which tries to grapple with that obsession with the self or with identity or the individual which also makes this You, call, you talked about metamodernism as a as a different term for what comes after postmodernism, and it comes in in manifestos. <laughs> and what I find so intriguing is that you know you have this term. I mean, I already talked about David Foster Wallace's manifesto. It's a very avant-gardistic way of engaging with art production, saying I'm going to write a manifesto and I'm going to say it's got to be 
without ideological anchors. But that is very an ideological thing to begin with, writing a manifesto and, you know, expecting the art world and people at large to accept the manifesto um, and say, okay, this is a turn, this is a shift. Uh, it marks a coming in of, of something new. And so you, you already talked about, we talked about Bartleby. And one of my questions was, how American is this text? But also how modernist or maybe metamodernist is this text? So when I, when we, we, we emailed about this before, I'm also reading Thomas Mann's Zauberberg at this point. And um, it's one of my favorite books. And I'm going to use this opportunity to recommend it to everyone. <laughs> um, and the Zauberberg is, is, uh, has a protagonist that uh, is, he's young, he's healthy. Um, and he only takes a, a, a three week, wants to take a three week break in Davos, uh, travels up the mountain to a sanatorium. And then he gets stuck there for seven years. And he's told over and over that he's sick and he starts believing it. And he also takes his rest cure. So he lays down uh, after lunch, I think, every day for three or four hours. And the objective is to do nothing, to really just rest. And um, he meets all these other European characters. And it's, it's, it's really about a crisis of, of Europe as uh, before uh, the onset of... Um, of the 1920s. It's also a moment of crisis, of standstill, of artistic production that has come to an end because there's no more recipes for how to engage with the world. And uh, Hans Kastop, the protagonist, it's not like he experiments willingly, like um, the unnamed uh, protagonist or narrator of Moschweg's novel, but he is drawn into something that becomes a crazy individual crazy experience of individualism and subjectivity that goes beyond language in other ways. So I can't talk about the Zauberberg at length here, obviously, even though I would love to. But the modernist moment, as in something comes to an end, new thing has to come in, we need new artistic productions, and, and we this is coupled with a moment of economic, deep economic crisis. So... It rings so true in my ears because it's a hundred years past. So there's many uh, commentators who say uh, the 1920s uh, or the 2020s are going to be like the 1920s or I don't know what's what's happening. Um, we're now we're facing a, a re reset again that many commentators have compared to the modernist moment, the anxiety and the sense of being overwhelmed with things at the same time. Uh, and so I think Morfei's novel takes up this moment of crisis logic that goes, it even goes beyond the present uh, and it becomes readable through the 19th century and through maybe also the American uh, exceptionalism narrative that is re deconstructed in here. And so I think it's modernist and it's American at the same time. What do you think about the American argument? How American is this text? <laughs> I don't know if I can. <laughs> I, don't know, I, I know it's a biggie, but I, yeah, I, don't, I don't know if I can, um, uh, yeah, and how far I can, can respond to it. But, but thanks so much for those very, very or mm -hmm. I, I just found that I was very intrigued by, by what you just said and just had to think somewhat also along those lines, maybe comparing the, the question of a cer certain. American context and, and the, the modernist context at the same time, because I mean, draw, drawing on, on, on crucial insights from the fields of black studies, thinking of, of um, black feminist theory, Afro-pessimist theory, for instance, then um, this, this modernist moment in, in particular as a, as a moment, as you said, of, of, of crisis and um, um, a kind of the idea of referring to power and to, to make something new and so on and so forth. That this uh, reju rejuvenation and this um, ex artistic expression, um, very much in in um, in uh, the American context, but I, I suppose also in the or in the Western uh, European context, um, relies upon or is based upon the ab abjection of, of of blackness and um, and this and the um, objective objectification of, of blackness and the treatment of blackness also black cultural expression as a as a um as a kind of fungible source for white rejuvenation for instance um and this is yeah. also something which 
is played out, I would say, in, in Marshfake's novel through the, the protagonist who um, is kind of obsessed with Whoopi, Whoopi Goldberg and, and uh, watches, constant, watches um, Whoopi, Old, uh, Whoopi Goldberg on VHS videos on, on, on repeat and, and also sexualizes in, in certain passages very much sexualizes Whoopi Goldberg. And in this experiment of receding from life in this sleep experiment, becoming as inanimate as possible, um, this character who once more identifies as white Anglo-Saxon Protestant seems to need some kind of uttered body, um, um, the, the black female body of, of Whoopi Goldberg as some kind of um, animating, animating, objectifiable um, utter in, in, in a way to, to, in order to, to persist. Um, to to a certain degree. Um. The other the other episode, of course, that's key is is when where she goes to take get her coffee, at the bodega, and uh, the staff there. She only calls them the Egyptians, and they seem to be they're presented in a super uh, Orientalist way. They're described in a. Uh, she she can't distinguish between individuals, uh, and she doesn't care to. She only gets her coffee there, and. And another in another scene, she takes her friend there, who makes a racist comment, and then she calls out her friend for a race, making a racist comment about the staff at the coffee shop, while she herself has an absolutely essentializing, orientalizing view of the people who work at the coffee store. So uh, she she really has no awareness; it doesn't seem to care, and also she's unable, obviously, to identify her own privilege. So she's oblivious to. The things that have been imparted to her because she's a, uh, a white person and she's privileged. So we, we discussed my year of rest and relaxation as a 9-11 novel, as a trauma novel, um, as a uh, novel of the new sincerity, maybe also a hark back to modernism or metamodernism. And uh, we talked about the aesthetics of sleep in this. So the novel comes at a at a time where we commemorate and remember, maybe for those of us who lived through um, the mediatized images of 9-11, where we where we talk about the meanings of this event in 2001. And we always we also have to ask about the meanings of US art feminist art in the present moment in the art industry. And I think it's an appealing read uh, for all those who are interested in contemporary artistic production, contemporary literature, and American culture at large. I would recommend it for reading um, also in the classroom. And maybe we can close with Mario's reminiscing his own teaching experience with the novel uh, in a few very few words and uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your ex teaching experience what do students have to say yeah thanks so i've discussed this this uh, novel in two seminars actually one which dealt with the aesthetics and politics of sleep and the other one which dealt with presentations of mental health and um, mental distress and U.S. American literature, and in both of those seminar contexts, the sessions that dealt with Moshfeck's novels were among the most lively, most vibrant discussions in, in, in through the entire semester. And the text really appealed to students. Um, at the same time, it also, um, even though some students also claimed that it was kind of um, repulsive, but um, in, in, but I mean, it, it's really a good material for discussion, and particularly because it touches upon many issues which are highly uh, contemporary, meaning that, that we've also uh, spoken about and, and addressed. There seems to be a certain yearning circulating towards authenticity in this still ongoing, in this post 9-11 uh, phase, even if it is still ongoing at the same time. Um, the, the question of um, which role um, artistic practice can, can play also with respect to questions of Political political engagement on a uh, micro political personal level um, with respect to the work environments that we we find ourselves in with with respect to questions of race class gender which are also addressed in 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 the novel and at the same time I mean both of those uh, seminar sessions um, I taught them online 
during wow. the pandemic and this pandemic situation and the setting or the experiment of the novel person kind of isolating themselves from the outside world, hibernating, that resonated a lot, mm. of course, on, on, on multiple um, on multiple levels, on, on, on cognitive reflective mm. levels, but also, um, yeah, I suppose um, somatically and effectively. And, and that, that also made it seem uh, very relevant relevant te- text to uh, to engage yeah. with yeah so it is it is a text for the present moment in many ways and it's an appealing text by a young and coming uh, American author who's who's being discussed far and wide thank you very much for sharing the teaching experience as well and thank you for being my guest today and uh, let's see where the pandemic the post 9-11 moment and the present takes us Thank you very much. Thank you. just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the America Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.